welcome to the Fit for the Future podcast, which helps you navigate this fast-changing world by bringing you ideas, information, interviews, and insights for being fit for the future. Here's your host, Gihan Pereira. Hello, and welcome to this podcast episode. I want to start with a little bit of a rant because I read about a study recently about students at a university and whether they could use electronic devices in their class or not. And the study was looking at how it affected their learning. And what the researchers from Rutgers University in the USA found was that when students were using electronic devices in class, so their smartphones, their tablets and uh, laptops, for non-learning related work. So in other words, they could have been watching YouTube videos or they were on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat. What they found was that when these students were in class, if they were using an electronic device or the people around them were using it, so they could have been potentially distracted by it, their performance didn't suffer. So their comprehension when they were tested immediately after the class about what they just learned, their comprehension was just as good as students who were in a class where those electronic devices were banned. Now, I think that's amazing. It's astounding. It's possibly quite surprising because for us who are Generation X or older, we grew up with uh, having to concentrate and be focused on one thing to be able to learn and to comprehend information. But now we find these Gen Ys and Gen Zs who actually have figured out how to manage their cognitive load even when there are interruptions and distractions. Now, this is just one study, but I think it's just quite amazing to see that the younger generation, who are often criticised for their use of social media and electronic devices have actually figured out how to be effective and efficient even when using their devices. Okay, so why am I ranting about this? This should be a positive thing, right? And I think it is. But here's the catch. If you want to look around for this on Google, don't look for a study that says that dividing attention in the classroom doesn't influence comprehension and learning. Look for an article that says dividing attention in the classroom reduces exam performance. That's right. The researchers reported on negative performance rather than the positive performance that I've just described. Okay, so who's right? Well, here's what happened. So despite the fact that the researchers found that comprehension didn't suffer in the moment and directly after the class, what they also said was that when it came to the final end-of-term exam, that the students who were distracted, either by using their own devices or device of people next to them, their exam grade suffered, their retention suffered, they lost up to 5%, which was equivalent of half a grade. Now, here's a point. Who cares? Who cares if retention suffers? Retention is talking about how good you are at memorizing things and then being able to regurgitate the facts later. Well, that shouldn't be what you're testing students for. Now that the students will have access to Google every day of their life, we shouldn't be measuring things like memorization and retention and the ability to regurgitate facts. We should be testing comprehension and understanding and the ability to use multiple intelligences to to take facts and use them in meaningful ways. And this research showed that the comprehension of students didn't suffer because they were using electronic devices. And and I think this is really interesting. I think it's really interesting for two reasons. So first, as I've said, I think it's amazing that uh, younger generations have figured out how to use electronic devices effectively. And the criticism that's often leveled at them is, I think, unfounded. But I reckon the second thing is really interesting, that this research and all the reporting of it is how electronic devices harm 
students in their learning is actually not true. It just harms them in their ability to remember things in an exam, in an environment where they're not given access to things like Google or their textbooks. And I think this is a key point, that we're still evaluating, judging, assessing and criticising people based on things that were important a generation ago, but aren't so important now. The skills that will be valuable in the future are not the same as the skills that were valuable for us in the past. What got us here is not going to get you there in the future. And we should be judging and assessing people based on different criteria, especially the people who are going to be working in your teams. They may have very different skills than you had, and they may be missing some of the skills that you had, but it may not be important that they're missing some of those skills. And this is what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the best workplace on earth and what you have to do to attract, retain, and reward the best talent. Because we are in a war for talent, and we're looking for the best people. And and the best people are looking for where they want to work, and they have so many choices now. Are you providing the best workplace on earth? Let's talk about that now. Let me start with a story that I tell in many of my keynote presentations. It's about my niece, Abby, who's now 13. And when she was 10, she used to play Lego and she used to have a lot of Lego friend sets. And when she outgrew them, she sold them on Gumtree. And the rule in her family was that she was allowed to keep half the money for herself and the other half she gave to a charity of her choice. And she was pretty good at it. She set an attractive price for selling it and she usually sold a kit within an hour of advertising it. So at the tender age of 10, Abby was already learning about online trading and marketing and social responsibility and a new model of ownership. Now, my 19-year-old stepdaughter, who's also named Abby, is now in her second year of studying physio, physiotherapy at university. And even though she's still a teenager, she's already had six part-time jobs, coaching gymnastics, babysitting, serving at a supermarket checkout, managing events, working in hospitality at a sports stadium, and being a sports trainer for a football team. Now, both of my Abbeys are still years away from entering the professional workforce, but you already have other Abbeys in your organisation and other people who are assessing whether they want to join it. And these are the smart, talented, innovative people who want to make a difference in the world. And we're already seeing significant changes in the nature of work. And the workplace of the future will be very different from the workplace now. It will be much more common to change jobs more regularly, to switch careers every few years, to work shorter hours and even work multiple part-time jobs concurrently. And if you're leading a team or organization in this new world of work, you're going to face different responsibilities and challenges than you do now. And the biggest change is the shift to individual power and influence. We used to say there's no I in team, but that's no longer true. There is an I in team now because your team members have more influence, more power, and more access than ever before. And they'll bring them to work to assist you and your organization if you let them. So what do you have to do? Let's talk about the best workplace on earth. Two workplace researchers, Rob Goffey and Gareth Jones, asked people about what makes up the best workplace on earth. And they identified six things. Identity, in other words, let me be myself. Transparency, tell me what I need to know to get my job done. Talent, help me develop my unique skills and talents. Pride, give me a place where I can say I'm proud to work. And then meaning, give me work that's meaningful, not menial. And finally, support. 
don't get in the way with stupid rules. Now, this is radically different from workplaces even just a generation ago, where, according to organisations like Gallup, employees looked at things like superannuation, flexible holidays and good benefits. That's what they were looking for then, but they're looking for different things now. But even leaders and managers who offer these six things now still struggle to attract and retain the best of the best, the stars or the high potentials. See, the best people just want different things now, and many leaders don't know what they are. So the best people stay around for a while. They're hoping to be attracted and inspired, but they eventually get pulled away by a stronger magnet and they leave. And most leaders and managers don't know how to lead teams in a disruptive, fast-changing world. And this is true even if you're an experienced leader. Dare I say it, especially if you're an experienced leader. Because what used to work doesn't work anymore, and you need new strategies to lead and manage effectively. Compare this to the way that computer games have changed. When I was growing up in the 1980s, computer games like Pong were all the rage, and they had very basic graphics, just a few black and white pixels moving around on a screen. Now, you've got gaming devices like the Xbox, which deliver such compelling visuals and these three-dimensional effects that look almost lifelike. The trouble is, many leaders today feel like Pong thinkers in an Xbox world. It's a classic case of imposter syndrome, which a surprising number of leaders feel even now, especially now, when the leadership techniques you learned and honed over decades just don't get traction anymore. So let's look at each of those six areas of the best workplace on earth in turn, because they do support the principle that, yes, there is an eye in team now. And this is something you should do in practice, not just in theory. So we're going to look at each of these six sections. And at the end of each, I'm going to ask you some questions to help you put the ideas into practice in your team, in your business, in your organization. So take a few minutes to answer these questions, either by yourself or even better, involve your team members as well. So number one is to embrace diversity. Mix up your thinking. Encourage diversity across your team so you can tap into their unique skills and talents. Let me start with a story. In 2015, as part of its advertising campaign to attract new mobile phone customers, Optus unveiled advertising in major shopping centres, including one in Sydney's southwest. And this area has a significant Arab-speaking population. So, naturally, Optus used posters written in Arabic to explain the staff members in that store also spoke Arabic. And unfortunately, that enraged some of the local residents who, who seemed to be confused by the differences between Arabic, Syria, Islam and terrorism. And they angrily protested on the Optus customer forum. And the Optus staff faced such serious threats that Optus was forced to remove the posters. And during the height of the conflict on these online forums, one Optus customer support person, known only as Dan from Optus, stood out for his firm but fair approach to the customer backlash. For example, when one woman wrote, This is Australia, not Islam, on the Optus Facebook group, Dan politely and calmly replied, Australia is a country, while Islam is a religion. The language used in the sign was Arabic, which is also spoken by a number of non-Muslim countries. Now, his calm approach earned him a lot of praise, and his responses went viral. When asked for his secret, he said, I'm passionate about human interaction. You're dealing with people, and you've got to treat people as human beings. No one's born racist. No one is born bigoted. It often comes from fear. So if you approach those people with love and explain why they don't have anything to fear, that way you tend to get a lot better response than to tell them if they were wrong. Now, his response and his responses on the forum didn't come from Noptus customer service script, but they came from the company allowing him to share openly and to share passionately and to share compassionately. 
So here's the point. In our fast-changing world, diverse thinking in your team is not just desirable, it's essential. It helps you tackle new problems and it helps your team members leverage their unique skills and talents. Now, the best teams strike the right balance between diverse thinking and shared goals. See, when you combine diversity and focus, you find four different types of collaboration. And none of them are better or worse than the others. They're all useful at different times. So the first kind is fixed thinking. Now, fixed thinking when it comes when you have vague kind of goals and everyone thinks the same way. And unfortunately, this is the default mode in most workplaces where people are mostly doing their routine work. So they bond through their similarities and they might not have specific goals. So there's no need to stretch or think differently. Now, I say unfortunately, but actually that is what you need when you're just doing repetitive routine work. So fixed thinking is okay, but it's limited if that's the only kind that you've got. The next kind is narrow thinking. So this is again where you've got people who've got a similar kind of mindset, but now they're focused. And this is what many leaders try to do to break people out of fixed thinking. They give them a clear focus. And that's how most projects work. You set a goal, you share that goal, and then work towards it. Now, narrow thinking is useful, but it's only useful for for things like project work. But it's not so good for innovation and change because it can lead to groupthink, where you end up with bad ideas just because everybody agrees. Okay, let's look at not having people with the same sort of mindset, but let's add a bit of diversity. So then you have wide thinking. That's the third kind. Now, that's where you have people with a different kind of thinking mode, but maybe not just as focused. So you might try and increase the diversity of thinking by natural sources, by getting people with diversity in age or gender and culture, or by artificial means like running creativity exercises or having off-site retreats or flexible workplaces. Now, this can generate new ideas. Absolutely, it's a good thing to do. But the risk is that sometimes you just create a talk fest. Then the fourth kind is sharp thinking. Sharp thinking is where you have diverse mindsets and a clear focus. And that's a way to get the best ideas. What you do is you take a diverse group of thinkers and give them a clear focus. The diversity generates more ideas and the focus means that you narrow and sharpen them towards your specific goals. So as I said, all four styles have their place, but many workplaces often only offer fixed or narrow thinking. And that doesn't help your team members share their uniqueness. And it usually keeps your team and organization too closely tied to the past. Okay, here's some questions for thinking ahead. First, do you really embrace diversity and uniqueness as opposed to just tolerating or accepting it? Number two, how do you give team members the opportunity to engage in this sharp thinking, so diverse ideas with a clear focus? And three, what about yourself? How are you exposing yourself to more diversity in thinking in your own life? Okay, so that's the first principle, to embrace diversity. The next one is to give them authority. Push authority to information. They already know what to do, so give them the power to do it. In Pearl Harbor in January 1999, David Marquette, who was in charge of the US Navy's nuclear submarine Santa Fe, was leading his crew through a series of intense training exercises. And in one of those exercises, the engineer deliberately shut down the nuclear reactor. 
because they wanted to test the crew's ability to deal with that situation and to find and correct the fault. So the submarine switched to its battery backup, which was fine, and then the troubleshooters started working through their pre-planned checklist of what they needed to do before the battery power ran out. Now, Marquette was bored, he admitted it, and he decided to, to raise the ante, to raise the stakes by increasing the submarine speed. And that would increase the drain on the battery, and that would add extra pressure to these troubleshooters who were trying to solve the problem. So he nudged his officer on deck, Lieutenant Commander Bill Green, and asked him to increase the speed from ahead one-third to ahead two-thirds. So Green immediately barked out the order to the helmsman, ahead two-thirds, and then nothing Nobody said anything. The helmsman didn't respond, and Marquette noticed him looking a bit nervous and embarrassed and squirming in his seat, and he asked why. And the embarrassed helmsman replied, Captain, there is no ahead two-thirds on this ship. And then Marquette later took Green aside to ask him why he ordered it. Now, Green admitted that he knew there was no ahead two-thirds, but he went ahead and ordered it because, as he said, you told me to. And Marquette was stunned. This was his first role commanding this type of submarine. So to some extent, he was one of the least experienced crew members. But because he had the title, his crew would respond without question to his orders. And he resolved to change that culture. He resolved to transform that culture to empowerment rather than blind obedience. So here's the point. All successful leaders and managers know how important it is to delegate, but many of them still do it in a way that doesn't empower their team members. So here's how the old process used to work. You'd ask a team member to do something, and then you'd create a series of little check-ins along the way to ensure that things were going on track. Now, if something unexpected happened, the team member would alert you, the manager, immediately, and then you could deal with it, or you could advise them how to deal with it. So this is the model where you push information to authority. Whenever new information arises, it's pushed up to a more senior person who then has the authority to decide how to deal with it. The problem with that is the team member never truly becomes empowered. Even if they learn from their manager, they only learn from observation and they never have to make those decisions themselves. And Market realized that to truly empower his team, he needed to switch that around, push authority to information. So let's look at the difference between those two approaches. If you think about authority and information, if you gave people the authority to do something without the right information, then it's reckless, of course. So you could give them the initial information, but if you withhold authority, it then leaves them powerless. Marquette realized his team already knew most of what they needed to do, but he knew it, it would be too big a change to simply ask them to make all decisions without his input. He wanted to empower them, but that meant that he needed to give them authority in a kind of safe environment. So he eventually settled on a technique that struck the right balance. When a crew member faces a new situation, they decide what to do. Now, they can go ahead and do it if they feel comfortable enough, and if they want to check in with Marquette, they say to him, Captain, I intend to, blah, blah, blah. And then more often than not, Marquette simply replies, go ahead. So by pushing the authority to act to the people who have the information, you empower your team, remove yourself as a bottleneck, and create a more nimble team and a more nimble organization. So here are three questions for you thinking ahead. How can you give your team members more authority in the future without having all these check-ins along the way? What rules in your organization get in the way of pushing authority to information?
And then if you were about to start doing this, if you want to give it a try, pushing more authority to your team members, who could you start with? You might choose to start small with one or two people who you know that it would work well as a bit of a pilot experiment. Okay, that's pushing authority to information. That's the second principle of creating the best workplace on earth. The third one is about talent, and let's talk about reverse mentoring. So you turn around mentoring. Instead of being a mentor to more junior people, ask them to mentor you. Kelly Mooney, who's the CEO of the Digital Marketing Forum Resource Initiative, does this. Every month, she has a meeting with one of her team members, Matthew, for an update on the latest in brands, consumers, and technology. Now, although Matthew is many years her junior and many levels below her on the organization chart, she eagerly looks forward to the opportunity of learning from him. So this is the idea of reverse mentoring, where the younger, more junior people in an organization provide the mentoring for older, more senior staff. It's not an isolated example. Here in Australia, Janet Wilson, who's the CEO of Brisbane law firm Cooper Grace Ward has an agreement with younger members of her firm to do the same thing. They mentor her every month. She chooses a different mentor every three to six months. And she says, the conversations are inspirational, sometimes worrying, always refreshing. And I make them as casual and friendly as possible. We have fun and we have lots of laughs at each other's expense. The Hartford, which is a financial services group in the USA, leveraged the power of reverse mentoring to reach a new kind of customer, to understand the new workforce, and to improve their bottom line. And across the organization, 50 mentoring pairs participated in the program. And they just had some great results. So 97% of the mentorees who remember were the senior people rated it extremely effective for their own personal development. And just as importantly, 11 of the 12 mentors in the project's first wave were promoted within a year. And remember, the mentors were the younger people. And the business had bottom line results as well. They implemented new business practices that saved time and money. They increased their social media engagement and they boosted the internal knowledge within their teams. So here's the point. In a traditional mentoring environment, the more experienced, more senior, usually older person, shares their experience with more junior people to fast track their development. And this helps a mentoree build their judgment and eventually gain wisdom. Now, reverse mentoring turns this idea on its head. This time, it's a more junior person in the mentor role, and the biggest contribution is perspective rather than experience. Now, younger and more junior people often do have more expertise, and some of the things are obvious, social media, mobile devices, and technology in general. But don't stop at those obvious areas. They might also have expertise in other areas, such as consumer behavior, because they know how people of their generation buy. Recruitment. You can use their networks to find new staff for your team and your organization. Talent management, they value different things from a workplace. And even money, they have different attitudes towards saving, wealth and retirement. But their biggest contribution is their new, fresh, innovative perspective on the world, which helps senior people shake up their established viewpoints, which are often difficult to break down by themselves. So if you're the more senior person, then reverse mentoring accelerates your learning curve, gives your team members new opportunities, enhances morale, boosts productivity, and creates a closer team. So engage a smart, savvy, younger person to be your reverse mentor for the next three months. Listen to their insights, follow their advice, and resist the temptation to think that you're smarter just because you're older and you're more experienced. So here are three questions to get you thinking ahead. Number one, the obvious one, who could be your reverse mentor at work?
Number two, who among your peers could you connect with your more junior team members? Again, with the idea that the junior people are going to be the mentors for your peers and colleagues. And three, how are you using reverse mentoring in your personal life with your own children, your grandchildren or other young people in your life? So we've looked at three of the principles of building the best workplace on earth, which are supported by the idea that there is an iron team. The fourth one is to share the journey. And this is about purpose and pride. Stand for something that matters and you'll attract people who want to do work that matters. There's a small New York City-based organization that advertised for a graphic designer to add to its 70-person staff, and over 500 people applied. And when they later advertised for a receptionist, they got almost 1,000 applications. Now, they weren't offering above-average salaries or lucrative stock options or free food and massages for their employees. But the people who applied want to work for this non-profit organization called Charity Water, which builds wells around the world to provide clean and safe drinking water for the developing world. And it's not surprising that an organization with such a strong social purpose attracts like-minded employees. The founder, Scott Harrison, proudly claims that people would gladly give up other benefits and perks to do work that matters. And everybody there knows that everything they do, directly or indirectly, helps families around the world. Now, Charity Water doesn't just do good on the outside. It was also named one of Inc. Magazine's 2018 Best Workplaces for how it operates on the inside. So their internal practices reflect the brand values, which are kindness and caring. And they build a culture that attracts people who are also aligned with those values. For example, there's a strict no swearing policy and an equally strict no white lies policy. And that puts it at odds with many other workplaces, which at least tolerate and sometimes even condone those kind of activities. Now, Harrison freely admits that many of the ideas that he uses and that he's used in the organization aren't original. He and his leadership team visit other great workplaces. They look at what works best and they borrow those ideas that fit within the charity water culture. But they don't automatically adopt everything. Instead, they only choose what's consistent with their brand so they can continue to provide and create a place where people feel proud to belong. So here's the point. In the best workplaces on earth, people want a place where they can say they're proud to work. They want to know what we stand for, that they value what we stand for, and they feel like they're making a difference in the world. Now, that sense of pride doesn't only occur in non-profit organizations like Charity Water that reaches out to the entire world. It can occur in any organization, small or large, in any industry, and in myriad ways. Now, an organization like Charity Water started with a higher purpose goal, but that isn't always the case, and it may not be the case with your organization. Many organizations start by solving much more prosaic problems for their customers or helping them reach some small goal in their lives. Now, in the past, that was enough to thrive because solving problems kept the business alive and employees were happy enough to work for that kind of business. Now, solving problems is still important, but it's just the price of entry now. Employees expect more and want to work for an organization with a strong mission, values, and purpose. It's the difference between offering a salaried job and inviting people on a shared journey. If all other things are equal, they will choose the more exciting journey. I mean, wouldn't you? And even if all other things aren't equal, the best people will still choose their journey. So if your organization doesn't yet stand for something that matters... That's okay. Consider yourself lucky. Work with your people to design your mission, your purpose, and your values. By involving them in the process, they take greater ownership of it, and they live it every day. 
And to create this workplace, use authentic stories, not abstract concepts. For example, the US department store Nordstrom is famous for its customer service, and some of its stories are known even outside the organization. For example, there's one story that there's a staff member who accepted a return of car tires from a customer who brought them back, even though Nordstrom doesn't even sell tires. So that story has become legendary and it just demonstrates Nordstrom's commitment to the customer's always right. So here are three questions to get you thinking ahead. Number one, what do you stand for? And would your team all answer this question in the same way? Two, what stories reflect what you stand for? Stories that are shared around the team, around the organisation. And three, how can you create a habit of discussing what you stand for and then collecting stories that reflect this purpose? So we talked about pride, and that's the fourth principle of creating the best workplace on earth. The fifth one is about meaning. So add purpose to passion. People want to do work with meaning, where your passion drives you to create something with purpose. Let me tell you about Brianna Butler, who's a teacher at Milwaukee College Prep School. She has young students who are grasping the basics of reading, maths, and other primary school skills. Now, that's not unusual for many primary schools in the USA and indeed around the world, but Butler's class is a kindergarten class. These students are four-year-olds. They're not considered advanced or gifted, but the school has a really high focus on high academic standards, and that pulls the students well ahead of peers in their age group. And after just a year working at the school, Butler was amazed by the students' results. She says it's not something I would ever have expected from a four-year-old. And then she says, why doesn't everybody do this? And by this, she's referring to the way that the school supports its staff. Smaller class sizes, extra support in the form of resource teachers and educational assistants, and a positive nurturing environment for the staff, not only for the students, all help to create this culture. Now, the support for the staff starts right at the top with the school board. Now, the school board is inspired by the culture and in turn provides the support that feeds its growth. One of the board members, who's the founder of Good Karma Broadcasting, was inspired to join the board when he attended a school assembly, and he was inspired by the positive energy there. And he says, I've never seen a buy-in at this level from an entire staff, whether it's a school or any company. Now, many teachers are passionate about their chosen vocation, but the US education and many others around the world doesn't always allow them to fully express their passion. But for Butler and her colleagues, the school is a perfect place to work. It allows her to share that passion in a way that really makes a difference. And as one of her colleagues, Laura Perez, says, I wake up every single day excited to go to work. For me, it's the happiest place on earth. So here's the point. You'll hear some motivational gurus and some famous figures such as Oprah Winfrey, Steve Jobs and others who urge people to follow their passion. But passion alone is not enough for personal success. Um, ask any struggling artist or out-of-work actor. And passionate people can destroy a team if those people aren't the right fit for your organization. On the other hand, you also won't attract the best talent if all you can offer is dull, soul-destroying work. So here's a secret. Combine passion with purpose. Now, some people get those two things confused and they treat them as if they're the same, but they're very different things. As Morton Hansen says in his book, Great at Work, passion is do what you love and purpose is do what contributes. In other words, one is about how the world serves you and the other is about how you serve the world. And when it comes to your team members, they do meaningful work when they can apply their passion to your purpose, your 
being the organization's purpose. See, this gives you the best of both worlds. Because on the one hand, you have passionate people who are energized, excited, enthusiastic about their work, and their work gives them joy and pleasure. They find true meaning in that work, and they push through the tough times because they really, truly care. But at the same time, being aligned with your purpose means that they channel that passion to create real value. They understand how their job fits in with other parts of the team, they collaborate for a common cause, and they measure their impact by external results rather than just by internal motivation. So here are three questions to get you thinking ahead. How do you regularly connect the passion of your people with the purpose of your organization? How do you connect your passion with the purpose of your organization? And what else can you do to provide more meaningful work for each person in your team? Now let's look at the last of the six principles for creating the best workplace on earth. And this is throw out the stupid rules. So build judgment, not policies. Create processes that help them work, but don't get in the way with stupid rules. Let me tell you about Ségolène Royal, who was appointed France's Ecology and Energy Minister in 2014. And she tweeted once about the instructions that she had given to her staff. And she said, the only instruction given concerns using public funds with the utmost rigour, something the French expect of us. Now, what's so strange about that, you might ask? It's hardly controversial. And it would have met with approval from most ordinary citizens of France. But it was her other rules for staff, which she didn't tweet about and which she didn't admit to, that drew ridicule from the public and earned her the nickname Iron Lady. According to a ministry source, one of her first acts when taking up the new role was to create a strict code of conduct for staff. Now, that code of conduct was quickly leaked to the media, who gleefully pointed out some of the more outrageous rules. For example, it was reported that Royale insists on employees standing when she walks by. And to make sure that they did, she employed an usher to announce her entrance. She also insists that when she eats in a private salon, other staff are not allowed in the corridor outside because it creates what she calls noise disturbance. Now, this blocks off access to the canteen for the staff, but at least Miss Royale can eat in peace. And perhaps the most controversial edict, which affects all the women in her staff, was a strict ban on low-cut tops that show any cleavage at all. And immediately, Le Figaro, a newspaper in France, published a photograph of Miss Royal herself sporting a plunging neckline, and that led to her issuing a swift denial, saying, I naturally deny the ridiculous rumour regarding the ban on low cleavages at the ministry. But she stops short of denying any of the other rumoured rules, which various sources described as casting a frost over the ministry and her behaving like a royal. So here's the point. Most organisations don't set out to create stupid rules and stupid procedures and stupid processes, but many of them do end up that way. Instead of policies, create guidelines and invest in building good judgment in your team. Trust them to use their judgment when deciding whether to follow the guidelines. Trust them in using their judgment when deciding when to deviate from them. And trust them to use their judgment when deciding when to check in with you. As a leader, you have the benefit of experience. And that gives you good judgment, which in turn leads to wisdom. Your team members don't have the same experience, judgment and wisdom. So accelerate the experience curve by actively building good judgment in your team. Now, you can do that in three ways. You break down the walls, you raise the roof, 
and open the door. So metaphorically, breaking down the walls is helping them understand how their role fits with the rest of the team, the organization and the outside world. For example, they could step into a co-worker's shoes through things like job swapping or shadowing or job sharing. They could see how the output of their work is used by other people in the team and the rest of the organization. They could observe people who deal directly with customers so they understand how their work helps real customers. What about raising the roof? That's about exposing them to more senior roles so they can see the bigger picture. For example, they could attend your management meetings so they can see the higher level goals and strategy. They could see how you work under pressure, so instead of shielding them from the pressure, expose them to it so they understand it. They could make some of the decisions that you would usually make. And third, opening the door gives them the chance to now speak up and be heard. For example, they could have a forum to offer advice to more senior people, which of course includes you. They could represent the organization at external events, and they could draw on their networks to help you. So here are three questions for you to start thinking ahead. How often do you delegate decisions to others in your team with the mindset, I trust your judgment? How can you regularly build the judgment of each of your team members? And how willing or how reluctant are you to let team members make decisions for which you would be accountable? Okay, in summary, the workplace of the future is changing and your best people now want and demand different things than they did before. So remember the six things that employees want now from the best workplace on earth. Number one, identity. Let me be myself. Two, transparency. Tell me what I need to know to get my job done. Three, talent. Help me develop my skills. Four, pride. Give me a place where I can say I'm proud to work. Five, meaning. Give me work that's meaningful, not menial. And six, support. Don't get in the way with stupid rules. Are you providing these benefits in your workplace? Do you keep these in mind when you're recruiting new people, new talent? Do you nurture and reward people according to these things? Remember, there is an eye in team now, and it's your biggest competitive advantage. If you want to know what's on the horizon for being fit for the future, then download my app, Fit for the Future, on your iPhone or Android phone. And I created this app because many people come up to me after my conference keynote presentations or my workshop or my mentoring, and they ask how I do my own research, what blogs I read, what podcasts I listen to, what videos I watch. And they want to follow me, of course, and they want some recommendations so they can become fit for the future as well. So I created this app. I update it regularly with news, articles, videos, uh, other resources to help you become fit for the future. It's free and is ad-free, so head over to the iTunes store or Google Play and download it now. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and found something valuable for your personal and your professional life. And if you did get some value from it, I would love it if you could do me a favor, give me a review and a rating in your favorite podcast app. And that, that helps to promote it to other people as well. And if you want me to share ideas like this live at your next conference, then check out my speaking topics at gihanspeaks.com. And if you want to engage with me in other ways, go to gihanparera.com, G-I-H-A-N, P-E-R-E-R-A.com, where you can find my blog, newsletter, podcast, and webinars. And they're all free and they're all designed to help you leverage the potential of your organization, your team, and of course, yourself. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now. For show notes, past episodes, and more, visit GihanPereira.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.